Heavenly Father, we pray to you, for in your great mercy, you have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, which is kept in heaven for us. Lord, though we haven't seen you, we love you. And though we don't see you now, we believe in you and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for we're receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Lord, what a wonderful hope that we have in the resurrection. We know that without your resurrection, our, our beliefs are hopeless. They're in vain, even as your word says. But because you have risen, Lord Jesus, we know that we too will rise if we have faith in you. We look forward to that. I pray that even as we look forward to that hope, our present joy would be overflowing. Uh, Lord, set our minds on the day of your return this morning and teach us and bring about all the good effects in our life that happen when we have this day in view. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One thing we've been enjoying uh, as a family in the colder, wintry weather is board games. So we're getting into a lot of board games. One board game that I played a lot as a child was called the Game of Life. I don't know if you've ever seen or played this game. It's an interesting game. You travel around a board and uh, you, know, you start at birth and you get a job. And then you might get married, you might have kids, you might climb Mount Everest and you do all these different things. And uh, at the end, you come to the end of the line called the Day of Reckoning. And what do you do at the Day of Reckoning? You basically cash in all your children and your spouse and whatever else for money and all your other achievements and your insurance and everything else. And the person with the most money at the end of the game of life wins. What great things we instill in our children. But there are some useful things to be salvaged from the wreckage here. If you could zoom out from your life and see it as kind of a, a path, where would you be on that path? I once saw a poster on a university student's wall and it had a timeline and said, you are here, and it was 20 you know, out of 80 or 90. It's a helpful picture to think about. Where are you in your journey in life? And what are you living for? What's going to matter at the end? And I once saw someone draw out a piece of string right across the room and imagine a piece of string going from one end of this hall to the other and then put a piece of chewing gum in the middle, a blue tack or something sticky, in the middle, which represents, this line represents eternity and this little sticky thing in the middle represents the span of your years on earth. Now which one are we living for? We're living for the line or are we living for the little sticky thing, the little width of a thumb? These are good questions to ask ourselves. And what on that final day is going to matter? Obviously, it's not money. What is it that's going to have weight on that final day for us? So today we're turning our thoughts to this final day. We're doing a series on heaven, a three-week series. Why? Because we want to turn our thoughts to our hope. Our belief is full of hope. We need to remember that, bear bear that in mind. So Christ is coming and we're going to focus on the last day. Why? Because we need to be ready. And why? Because this is a glorious day. I wonder how you feel about the final day. What thoughts or feelings does it bring up in your mind? Is uh, Is it an unpleasant thought? Is it a frightening thought? Maybe it's an exciting thought looking forward to the final day. Maybe the day of judgment is an unpleasant thing. Maybe it's like the ultimate exam. Exams at university must have done me some damage because I occasionally have this recurring dream of standing outside the exam hall, not having any idea what I'm studying or the subject matter. I wonder if you have any dream like that. But maybe the judgment day feels like just a whole exam for your entire life, not just one subject. 
but for your entire life? If so, that's a frightening thought. But if we're thinking rightly as the people who belong to Christ, we should be excited about this day. We should be living each day in light of it and we should be looking for it and prepared for it. So let's talk about this passage. What does it say for us concerning the final day? Verses 1 to 3 have some things to tell us. You know, um, Cherie and I had four children. And so Cherie has been through four full-term pregnancies. And our first pregnancy, uh, when she was due, she was a week overdue. And we had been asleep for about an hour. And all of a sudden, strange things happened to her body. Her water broke and she experienced some strange pains. And even then, we weren't quite sure if this was the real thing. I wonder if this is it. Now, in light of all the evidence, we concluded that it was. But we weren't even sure even then. And in her last pregnancies, they were all late. The last two were 12 days late. So as you can imagine, by the third, I, well, I didn't even take any notice of the due date. I was completely unprepared if she was to have a baby then. I was making appointments and scheduling my time as usual. I would have been completely unprepared if the baby arrived early. But for Cherie, she knew that day was coming. And I heard her say again and again, do I really have to go through this again? She knew it was coming. As late as it was, it was inevitable. And you know, the scriptures talk about the Lord's coming again, very similar to labour. Have a look at verses 1 to 3. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So the day of Christ's return is like a woman going into labour in a few ways. One way is that this, is, this day is set. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. So Acts 17.31, it says that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. So that day is fixed. God knows exactly when it's going to happen, even though we don't. And even when the Lord himself on earth didn't know when that day was going to be, the Lord has fixed this day. It's inevitable. Not only has the day been fixed, but it's unavoidable in that it's for all of us. It's for everyone who's ever lived. Each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says that exact thing. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body. So each one of us, whether believers or not believers, will stand before Christ on that final day. And we also see that it's like labour in verse 1, in that it's unexpected. We can't control this day. We don't know when it's going to happen. We can't prepare our timetable for it exactly. We don't know when it's coming. It will come like a thief. And have a look at verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. And so we see that the, the world is going to be completely unexpected, un, unaware of Christ's coming, caught asleep, if you like. So everyone will be going about their normal business, going to work, watching TV, playing football, doing our taxes, whatever it is, and Christ will return. And Jesus himself taught these very things that Paul is saying. Have a look at Luke 19. 26 to 30, we'll put that up on the screen. And Jesus himself says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. 
People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. So people will be going about normal business and the day of the Lord will suddenly come. For some of us, maybe for most of us, if the Lord delays his coming beyond our lives, we will die first. And for some of us, that may be in this room, some of us, that death may be very sudden and unexpected. Just late last year, Cherie's uncle was riding along the road uh, near Cairns in Queensland, Australia, riding along the side of the road with his wife on a, on a bike, uh, just a bike ride, and got hit by a car and killed instantly at the side of the road. So whether suddenly or slowly, that day will come for us all. And we can see in verse 3 as well that it's a, the kind of day that it is, it's a day of sudden destruction. It says destruction will come on them suddenly. Now, maybe if you've gone through labour, you'll think this is a fitting picture as well. Cherie says her quote about labour is that you think you're going to die and then it gets worse. So if you're going to have a baby, I'm sorry to have to say that to you. But the judgment day is going to be a very severe and painful day for, for many. We can, we, here we come across one of those, perhaps the most difficult Topic to, to speak of out of all the topics, the kind of party stopping conversation. Now, just as our hope in heaven and glory is real, so too eternal destruction is real for some. And we can't just uh, push this away, we can't ignore it, because Jesus' teaching on it is actually more common in the scriptures than his teaching on heavenly glory, because he doesn't want us to go there, he wants us to be ready. And so, again and again, he teaches on it. Now Jesus will return in power and might and glory, and he'll return in wrath. The first time Jesus came, he came on a donkey, didn't he? And he came quietly, and he came to serve, to give his life. He came to die. The second time he comes, he'll come not on a donkey. He'll come, it says in Revelation 19, this frightening picture. It, he, he comes on a white war horse with a sword Treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty is what the scriptures say. This is the way the Lord Jesus will return. A fearsome picture. And Jesus himself says, all the nations will mourn when I come again. And have a look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 9. It speaks of how we will react, those of us who know Christ and those of us who don't. One, two, two, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 9. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire. With his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On that day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Now, it's not pleasant thought, is it? It's not pleasant language, but it's the truth. For those of us who love Jesus, this will be a glorious and a marvellous day. But for those who have rejected him as king, it will be a dreadful and disastrous day. Now, we don't find pleasure in that reality, that people are going to experience destruction. And nor does the Lord find pleasure in that. A couple of scriptures in defence of the Lord's character, because he is seen as being in these ways, a God who is callous. But Ezekiel 33.11 says, As surely as I live, I, the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they turn from their ways and live. And then 2 Peter 3.9, it says, God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so 
Why does the Lord delay his day of judgment? Because he's waiting for all of his chosen ones to come in and for the message of the gospel to go out to the whole world. And he's calling all to come to repentance. So it's important we're ready for this day, not just for ourselves, but for everyone else who doesn't know the Lord, that we might be alert for their sake and ready for this day. So how are we to stay awake? Three years ago in uh, Brisbane, there was an event, you might have seen it on the news, but the city of Brisbane got flooded. And uh, we were living there at the time, and there was heavy rain for a number of days. And uh, one morning, my neighbour over the back fence came over and knocked on the door, and he said, look, I just want to ask, if my house gets flooded, uh, could I sort of access my property through over the gate or through the gate? And I, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, this seems a bit over the top, but sure, you could do that if you like. And I had no idea uh, about any kind of flood. So my 70-year-old neighbour was on the ball. And then um, the next day, I got a report from a friend emailing me a report of suburbs in Brisbane that were likely to get flooded. And my suburb, which is interestingly called Sherwood, was uh, on that list. And so started to get a little bit concerned. So Sheree and I walked down to the river and uh, could see you know, boat pontoons washed away and the water levels rising rapidly and starting to get concerned. Uh, later on that day, a friend, a couple from church said, listen, do you want us to come over and help move furniture and get, empty your house? And at that time, we decided that it was time to act. <laughs> Before then, I, I don't think I really believed this was going to happen. So over the next day or two, we emptied the whole house, carpet and everything, all our furniture. And sure enough, by that next day, the water levels had risen to such a state that our our house was almost flooded, a foot below the house. And the neighbour's house indeed was flooded to almost the peak. And so this picture, the most, I'll put it up, uh, the next one, the most surreal experience of my life, canoeing in my backyard with my boys, five foot in water, and you can see the peak behind the trees of the neighbour's house, totally submerged. It was an amazing experience. You know, I was caught napping on that one. I wasn't really listening and I wasn't ready for that day. Now, all of this is a lot like how we should be viewing the final day. We've received warnings, we've received promises about it, and that's going to change the way we act. That's going to cause us to act in a different way. We're not going to be like people who just ignore all of the warnings and think that nothing's going to happen. That would be foolish. And so it would be foolish for us to live in exactly the same way as everybody else in light of the great day. We're not in the darkness. And you know, uh, it says in Colossians, we've been translated out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of the light. And so we belong to a different kingdom. And in this kingdom, the big day, the glorious day, is the day of Christ's return. This is our big day. You think about an Olympian who um, is ready for the gold medal race the next day. That's one person you won't find in the nightclub partying and drinking up late. And so he's going to be ready. And look at verses 7 and 8. Sorry, let's read verses 4 to 6 first. But you brothers and sisters are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light, children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake And sober, we'll just go on and read verse 7 and 8. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. 
But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So we're given three illustrations of how we should be ready. Firstly, we're to be awake. You can see that there. We need to be awake and not asleep. Like the owner of a house who knows when the thief is coming and the Lord himself taught on this as well. Matthew 24, 42 to 44, Jesus says this. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So we're ready, we're living differently to the one who doesn't expect him, we're awake. Second illustration is that we need to be sober, exercising self-control and keeping watch. Maybe you've been designated driver at some function or some party where other people are drinking and your job has been to keep sober so you can do a job at the end. It's a little bit like that. And the third one is we're to be alert like a soldier. And you can see that in verse 8. We talked, we're given armour to put on. Now, we're to have a wartime mindset. Now, this picture of a battle is really appropriate, isn't it? Because battles are difficult. And in a battle, you have an enemy. And everything's pressing against you to make progress. And it's a struggle. And it's like that in our spiritual lives. And maybe you can remember a time when you were driving along the, the motorway and struggling to stay awake. Uh, I remember a time when I nodded off for a couple of seconds. I wonder if you've had a dangerous moment like that. What are your techniques for staying awake in those times? Maybe pinching yourself or uh, putting on loud music, maybe caffeine or shining a light in your eyes or conversation, giving someone a phone call hands-free, obviously. So there's all kinds of ways that uh, we do that. What, what are our techniques for staying spiritually awake? We're given some ways, given some means by which we need to stay awake. Because the world is, has a sleep-inducing effect on us spiritually. I've been reading Beatrix Potter to my kids. And we, uh, uh, lettuce has a soporific, a sleep-inducing effect on the flopsy bunnies. And they fall asleep. And Mr McGregor bags them and carries them away. And our world has this sleep-inducing effect on us spiritually, doesn't it? So what do we do to stay awake? What are our methods that we are to apply? And we are to actively apply them. There's no way we can progress in the faith by being passive. And so we get these imperative commands in the passage like, be awake, be sober, be self-controlled, put on, encourage. So they're active verbs that we need to apply. We need to do things. What are the means we're given? Have a look at verse 8. We're to put on faith, hope and love as a breastplate or as a helmet. So as armour. And there's no more powerful spiritual armour than these. Contrast these if we want to know what it is to be asleep. What are the opposite of those three? To not live in faith would be to live in unbelief or to live by sight. To not live in hope would be to set our hope on this world rather than the inheritance that we have to come. And to not live in love would be to live self-centeredly. And so we have unbelief, hope in this world, self-centered living are the kind of things that characterize us when we're being asleep. What do faith, hope and love shield us from? All kinds of perils. Some examples. Maybe selling our hope out in pennies for immediate kind of gratification living. That would be an example of what this would protect us from. Or bitterness as we look back on broken dreams. 
Maybe buying into the hoax of the retirement dream or placing our security in material possessions or self-serving life decisions that just siphon out our joy or love for the world that drives out and deadens our love for Christ or fear of rejection, fear of loss or fear of death. Faith, hope and love drive out all of those dangers, keep them at bay. Now, one objection that's been raised uh, about if we're heavenly minded, you've probably heard the, the cliche or the, the saying, too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Is that true? What happens if our hearts and minds are set on heaven in faith, hope and love? Are we of no earthly good? I think we can prove from Jesus' teaching that this isn't the case. In fact, that the opposite's the case. If we're heavenly minded, we're going to be more earthly good. The reason is this, that if we're heavenly minded and we're not setting our hope on the things of this world, then we'll be free to give it away. We'll be free to not vest our hope in these things and hold on to them. We'll be free to give them away. So have a look at Luke 12, 32 to 34. And this is a great example of where faith, hope and love really apply themselves in practice. And Jesus says this, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. As we read this, look for faith, hope and love. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you can see here how Jesus calls us to faith, to believe his promise. He's given you a kingdom. Don't fear. Trust my words. He's given us a hope that we have this inheritance, this kingdom that we're given, and riches in heaven. And so what's our response to that? It's to give away our possessions to the poor. So love comes from a life of healthy faith and hope in Christ. The more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we're going to be because we're not setting our hope in this world. Now, one other thing, and John's already said this well today, how are we to, another way we're to stay awake is to encourage one another. Just as he said, we do this journey to heaven together. This is one more thing we see in this passage. We need one another to keep each other awake, just like when you're driving. And there are two sections here about Christ's return in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4 and chapter 5. And you can see that both of them end, so 1 Thessalonians 4 ends talking about Jesus' return and how that's going to be. And it ends with these words. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Verse 14 of chapter, sorry, verse 18 of chapter 4. And then you look at the end of this section we're looking at today. Same thing. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. In other words, in light of Christ's return, twice we're told at the end to encourage one another with this truth. What truth are we to encourage each other with? Well, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Christian and Hopeful are wandering along uh, and they come to the Enchanted Ground, it's called. And I'll just read this little account. It says, They came to a certain country whose air naturally tended to make one drowsy if he came a stranger into it. And here Hopeful began to be very dull and heavy of sleep. So he said to Christian, I do now begin to grow so drowsy that I can scarcely hold up my eyes. Lest I lie down here. Let us lie down here and take a nap. Christian says, By no means, lest by sleeping we never awake more. 
Hopeful says, why, my brother, sleep is sweet to the laboring man. We may be refreshed if we take a nap. Christian says, do you not remember that one of the shepherds bade us beware of the enchanted ground? He meant by that that we should beware of sleeping. So let, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Hopeful says, I acknowledge myself in a fault. And had I been here alone, I would have by sleeping run the danger of death. I see it is true that the wise man says two are better than one. Now, said Christian, to prevent drowsiness in this place, let us fall into good conversation. Hopeful says, with all my heart. So here they stay awake by reminding each other of the truth. And the truth that we're to remind each other of is our hope. And we can see that in both cases where we read out these verses, let us encourage one another. What's the promise preceding it? Have a look at verse 10 of this chapter we're looking at today. It says, Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another. And then what does it say in 1 Thessalonians 4.17? And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Same idea. What's the promise? That we will be with Christ. So the hope we're to remind each other and encourage each other with is that we'll be with Christ. That's the glory of heaven. Said at each of these three weeks that the promise and the glory of heaven is that we will be with him, that we'll be with Christ in his presence. So we need to keep pointing one another to this hope. All right, last section here, longing for the day. Now, I was in, uh, on an army exercise once for a few days in the Australian bush and simulating escaped POWs. And so we didn't have much food and we didn't have many blankets. We had two blankets between five of us. And you know, you must be cold for five blokes to huddle up together when they sleep. That's what we had to do. And we spent one night halfway up this mountain on this ridge. And it was the most bitter, cold night of my life. And how I longed for the sun to rise. I remember just longing for the sun to rise, not knowing what time it was. Now, the Bible just assumes that this is what we will think about the final day. That we would just be longing for it to come. Now... 2 Peter 3, it says, Live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So not only will we be longing for it, but we'll be doing all we can that this day comes soon. Now, is that true of you? Would you say that we are longing for heaven and longing for Christ's return like that? Why wouldn't we have our, want to have our hope realised? And why wouldn't we want school to be over and the holidays to begin? Are we longing for Christ's return? Would you say you are? Uh, we did a survey a few weeks ago. We just put some results up of this survey. And question four was, what, if any, is your biggest fear or reservation about heaven? Uh, about 70 people responded, so it was great. And the, uh, a couple of responses here. A number of people said that there was a fear of the final day. But the most common reservation was by far a concern for others, uh, that they won't be there. And, you know, that's a legitimate concern. And in a sense, so is a fear of the final day, a, a, a sort of a keeping watch and a soberness about, will I be in heaven? Will I be there? So the problem is, the danger is, I suppose, that these, re these reservations tend to deaden our hope. So the res reservations or the concerns might be legitimate, but the danger is when they actually extinguish our hope in heaven. They kind of pour water on the flames. So I want to address these two concerns before we finish. First of all, concern for the lost. Often our concern, and I've 
spoken to a lot of Christians who say this, is that I can't get too excited about heaven because this person who I love may not be there. I want to say this, ask this question is, what's going to do your friend or your loved one the most good? Is it you abounding in hope or is it you having not much hope and longing for heaven? By far, what's going to do them the most good is you abounding in hope. Why? Because you'll pray urgently for them. Because your excitement and your joy will be winsome to them. And because you will seek to be for opportunities to, to bring Christ to them. And so having a concern for your loved ones who aren't going to be there, don't let it extinguish your hope. Drive that, 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 that concern into prayer and into urgency that they might be with you. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11 says this very thing. It says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then in verse 11 it says, since we know then what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. And so our response to knowing that we'll appear before the judgment is that we want to bring other people, persuade them to understand and put their trust in Christ. And lastly, concerning fearful reservations, one of the most encouraging verses, I think, in all of Scripture is verse 9. We're given these comforting words. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So one thing that, that is as fixed as this final day, if you have come to put your trust in Christ, is the promise that you will be saved, that you will be with Christ and rescued from that wrath that's coming on that day. I'll just close with this illustration. Um, I don't know if it's true or not, but a father and his daughter were on the Canadian prairie and walking along and all of a sudden they saw this one of those fires that they have on the prairies, they're racing towards them in the distance. And so the father knew that there was only one way of escape and he quickly began a fire right where they were, right where they were standing. And so that when the fire came, they were standing on the burnt section and they were safe. So as the fire's coming, the girl's terrified, but her father assures her the flames can't get to us because we're standing where the fire has already been. And you know what? It's like that when Jesus comes again. When Jesus died on a cross, he took the wrath already. He took the wrath of God on himself so that if you put your trust in him, you're standing where the wrath has already been. That's a beautiful hope for us. So you don't need to fear. If you've trusted in Christ, then you're not appointed for wrath, but for salvation. And that day is a day we can look forward to with great joy. So let's pray that we would do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to bear the wrath that we deserve, to drink the cup down to the bitter dregs, the cup of your wrath, that we might not have to drink it. Lord, we praise you for that. What a wonderful joy it is that we can be free from fear of that final day, that we have fled to you, the, one, the very one who comes to bring wrath and judgment, just judgment on a world that's forsaken you, the very one who is coming to do that is the one who has paid for it in your body on the cross that we might be safe from it. So we can look and see a saviour return on that day and not a judge. We thank you for that hope. Lord, we pray that we would be standing firmly in faith on Christ, in Christ, that we would look forward to this day with speed it's coming. Lord, how we pray for our loved ones and friends who don't know you. Lord, um, we pray that you'd bring them into your kingdom. We pray that we would pray and labour faithfully that they might be there with us. We pray also that we would spur one another on in light of this day. 
All the more as we see the day approaching, may we encourage one another and press on. Lord, please keep us from just reflecting on what you've done in the past in saving us from sin. But Lord, you have died for us so that we might be together with you. The end for which you died is that we would be together with you. May we dwell on that as well. Not just what you have done, but what you will do for us and the promise of being with you in eternity. Lord, we look forward to it. Help us to press on and may we stand there, we pray, uh, before you with one another in great joy and without fault uh, for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.